Hello, and welcome to the recap by Dive Collective. Over the next few minutes, we're going to hit the highlights of the last week's reading from our reading plan. Annika and I, and sometimes Kelly, are excited to invite you along as we read through the Bible together. You can find our reading plan at divecollective.org. It's a free download when you sign up for our newsletter. We know some love the accountability of a checklist, while others thrive from the freedom to join in whenever your schedule allows. The recap is intended to meet all of those needs. So whichever category you fit into, just know we're excited to have you here with us today. Welcome back to the recap. This is the September 18th episode. I have my facial control back. (laughs) Shouldn't be as many lists. Second Samuel, second Corinthians, we just started this week. And then Ezekiel, we are still in funny too, because I keep dreading Ezekiel. And then every time I get to it, I'm like, oh, that's amazing. There's just so many amazing things in it. Yeah. And there's so much that reminds me of Mark. Yeah. I'm excited. I definitely did some distracted reading this week because I spent some time reading while my kids were in school. So I felt like I was distracted for a lot of Ezekiel. I was pretty distracted this week too. I think that's just the way of things right now. But second Samuel, I was just thinking this week, I was like, man, we covered a lot last week. Spiritual gifts is stuff that like, do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot in it. And now we're coming to David and Bathsheba, which is like a, a major story. And it's just amazing how much 21 chapters of reading Oh yeah. (laughs) We'll get you through. Like there aren't a whole lot of dull moments. There's always something happening. Yeah. Yeah. No week where there's nothing to talk about for sure. Okay. So second Samuel, we started on chapter seven. One thing that I thought was interesting is just in the very beginning where David is asking Nathan, he's like, I'm living in this house and God's chest sits in a plain tent. Well, one, I love that, that David is like, this just does not Something's seem right. Not right. Yeah. Yes. I found it interesting that Nathan was like, whatever's on your heart, go and do it. God is with you. And then God is like, uh, mm-hmm. nope. <laughs> yeah, before he, I think you spoke too soon. And yeah. And God is like, I haven't asked anyone to build me anything else yet. So what makes yes. you think that I need that now? Kind of. Yeah. And then his reasoning is you are, you've been a man of war, but your son mm. is going to have peace. And I want, I want your son who's going to be living in a time of peace and prosperity to build my house. Like mm-hmm. you're not a man of war, which I just, I mean, Jesus, right. Is the perfect example of the character of God. That's what he came to be is like, be that he is the image, like the true image bearer of everything true of God. And to me, this is just such a humble, he's a humble, like holy and humble. Is that mm-hmm. how is, and you know what I mean? Like, this is just such a weird example of his humility. That's like, I don't need, nothing makes me different than what I am. Right. I don't need to live somewhere fancy to be glorious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Part of what fascinated me was that Nathan, David goes to consult Nathan and all throughout these next passages, we're going to see Nathan become, you know, the spokesperson for God and who mm-hmm. shares God's messages but here it seems like such a perfect response. You know, it seems like yeah. a holy response and Nathan's speaking from his wisdom, you know, whatever's on your mm-hmm. heart, go and do it. God's with you. Like clearly God has been with him. And then God is like, nope, nope. That's not actually what I want him to do. Yeah. I'm trying to think through like application of that because the f- first thing that I thought of when I was reading it was when Bruce was on here with us and he mm-hmm. made the comment about like, when we're walking in the spirit, we just, can do what our hand finds to do. What, what, who was that yes. reference to? 
He was talking about um, Saul, actually, because Saul Saul. was filled with the spirit. Okay. Uh But even just that idea that sometimes we think we're going on the right track Mm -hmm. and then our God redirects us. And it's so easy to second guess all of that. I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking about. And I feel like, I guess I, I think what struck me about this is that it could have gone either way. God could have been like, who do you think you are to speak for me without seeking me first? But that's not what he did. He just like redirected him. This week, as I was praying, I was like reminded that when I feel the closest to God, when I feel like I'm really walking in the spirit, I feel more and more aware of my sin. The more I aware I am of how far I am from being right. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how it works almost the same way with the more I know God, the more I realize I don't know God. Do you know what I yeah. mean? Like the more I know about God, the more I come to know who he is, the more I realize there's way more to wonder about him. Yeah. There's way more to not know about him than there is to know about him. Like I have such a longing to feel closer to him. And in that prayer of longing, it was like, show me more of my sin and everything that I do show me because I know that that's a sign that I'm walking more closely with you. Mm-hmm. And so this week, as I've been thinking, like, gosh, I feel like the more we talk about him, the more we end up with questions about mm-hmm. him and how he works. And this is an example of that. He could have gone either way. There's no way for us to know which way he's going to go at a given moment. So like, I don't have any answers about it. It's just, this is kind of neat that Nathan didn't know. And for whatever reason, in this case, God didn't rebuke him. He just Mm -hmm. like sets him on the right path. And I think it reveals probably a a little bit about Nathan's heart. Yes, that's what I was just going to say. Yep, I agree. Hi, I just wanted to take a quick break to let you know about a couple of great resources we have for you. First, did you know that we have two podcasts? I know, it's confusing. But we have this one, the recap, where we highlight our takeaways from the Bible reading plan. But we also have one called the Dive Collective Podcast, on which we highlight the gifts and talents and stories of our members. We have three great interview episodes already up, but we have more coming soon. So you're going to want to access those on both Google and the Apple Podcast platforms. We also have a couple of excellent free Bible reading resources on our website at divecollective.org. When you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get weekly emails with a devotion to start your week and a free download of the Bible reading plan. And we also have a dive guide in the shop. So check the shop out too while you're there. So head on over to divecollective.org to grab your free resources soon. I think one of the things I noticed in in that section that we were just talking about where God makes this covenant with David, Mm -hmm. I just noticed again that discipline was part of that covenant. Verse 14, in the middle of 14, when he does wrong, I will discipline him, but my faithful love will never leave him. And he compares it, I will be his father and he will be my son. I've said it before, especially as we've read through the prophets, just that idea that when God disciplines his people, he's keeping his promise. That is all part of the covenants that he's made. And that's just something that stuck out to me again this time. David's response to it is, it's unbelievable. Probably verse 21 says, you know me, Master God, just as I am. You've done all of this, not because of who I am, but because of who you are out of your very heart. But you've let me in on it. And then the next verse says, this is why you are great. All of the things he's done, but just like what you just read, that personal aspect to his nature. Yeah. This makes no sense that you would let me in on this. It makes Mm -hmm. no sense that you would choose to gift this to me. And yet you do. And he's unreasonable. 
He is an unreasonable God. He cannot be reasoned. Um, you want to go to Bathsheba? I do. Let's do it. I do. I do. Uh, chapter 11. I kind of paused at the very beginning where it says, when the time of year came around again, the anniversary of the Ammonite aggression, David dispatched Joab and his fighting men of Israel in full force to destroy the Ammonites for good. They laid siege to Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. I've actually, I know that I've heard a sermon preached on this. I can't remember by who, but the idea that like David stayed in Jerusalem, he was the king. He was the head of the army. That's what he, that was his role. That was the Mm -hmm. gift that God had given him was to be a fighter and a leader of fighting men. And for whatever reason, David was like, I think I'm going to set this one out and he just stays home. And it's in his choosing to be idle at a time when he should have been out leading his army. Mm-hmm. that temptation and ultimately sin snuck in. And so that actually made me, it just made me really think about the responsibility that we have to use our gifts. If God gives us a gift to use and an opportunity to use it, we should be doing that. Our hands shouldn't be idle. We should be doing the things that we're gifted to do. Also because that's what brings us joy. Mm-hmm. There's so much joy in doing the things that God has created you to do. And to take time off of using our gifts could create a situation where we're idle and we wake up from a nap one day and find temptation <laughs> across yeah. the street. Joab caught my attention here too. Where is it that Joab is like, Joab says, you better come with me and help overcome them because if you don't, I'm going to get credit for it. Oh, I don't even remember reading that. Oh my gosh. Hold on. Let me find it. I wrote it. That's chapter 12, 26 through 30. It says, Joab at war and Rabbah against the Ammonites captured the royal city. He sent messengers to David saying, I'm fighting at Rabbah and I've just captured the city's water supply. Hurry and get the rest of the troops together and set up camp here at the city and complete the capture yourself. Otherwise, I'll capture it and get all the credit instead of you. Mm -hmm. So David marshaled all the troops, went to Rabbah and fought and captured it. He took the crown from the king's head, very heavy with gold and with a precious stone in it. It ended up on David's head and they plundered the city, carrying off a great quantity of loot. I was like, who is this Joab guy? He's something. Except that like during the whole David and Bathsheba thing, like he's like David's little helper to cover everything up. And I kept waiting. I mean, I get that David is the king. And so you don't probably Question. question the king very often or like. I agree. Like Joab seems like the man. You're right. I don't know how I missed that. Like I did think of Joab as being a t- sly. He was sly the way that he did it too. Like he, he put him in the front lines mm-hmm. and then when people were killed, he was like, send a message back to David. And if he gets angry, mention For that why? Uriah is dead. <laughs> right. Because from a battle perspective, that was a really stupid move. Like he was yes. letting that. Yeah but make sure he knows that what he asked for has been done. Yes. And it's so smart. He's like, give him the bad news first. It would have changed everything if he had gotten that news first. It almost seems like Joab is more than just being a good guy. He's fully committed to David. Yeah. So like in that sense, he was like, I'll do whatever you ask me. And then in the sense of the end with taking over the city, he loves David or worships David or thinks David's so great so much that he want, he doesn't want to take the credit. So Joab's interwoven in all of these stories. Let's go back. David sleeps with Bathsheba. First of all, I thought, and I think we've talked about this before. I thought that Solomon was that baby 
Oh, no, that baby was, we have talked about this? Yes. I didn't realize they had a second child. So when I was looking at that lineage, when I saw that it was Uriah, Solomon was Uriah's son. No, it doesn't say that. No. It says Uriah's wife. Yeah. So anyway, I made that, I just made that connection. Uriah's wife, Solomon was the son. And then I was like, okay, so that just meant, that must mean that Solomon was the result of that Mm. then and he was not he obviously like part I feel like of the, that's like this image burned into my mind from like sunday school as a kid of david on the floor next to his sick baby it's one of those you know like the visuals yes yeah and i know i have seen it before so it's not like yeah it just didn't register yeah, yeah i just didn't i didn't register that this was the son that he was lamenting for i don't know anyway all of it came together to so david sleep with the Bathsheba. she gets pregnant David can't cover it up. He tries every other way to cover it up so that Uriah will think it's his baby. Mm-hmm. And Uriah is an... That's the part that I forgot about in the story was how David had tried like all these other ways before he had him killed. Yes. Go home and be with your wife. Not and only Uriah's that, but like, listen, the Ark of the Covenant, the reason he wouldn't go out there is he's like, the Ark of the Covenant is out there and all of these men are out there sleeping. I'm not going to go be comfy in my house while mm-hmm. all of all of Israel is out fighting beside the presence of God, which is where David should have been. That contrast by itself was like his determination not to go home to his wife and be comfortable even for one night while David is home in his courts, just taking naps while the Ark of the Covenant and all of his people are out at war. It was like, oh my gosh, that's so blatantly obvious, but not, you know? Yep. So David, because he can't, cover his sin any other way, ends up murdering Uriah. Uh, Nathan comes and gives him a message. And the consequence of that is that his son will die and there will be murder within his family um, and war, constant war. Mm-hmm. Then we see that in just the next chapters is where we find Tamar raped by her brother. brother yeah. Remember that there were so many prominent Tamars because Tamar is from before Ruth, right? Oh my gosh. The Tamar, the Tamar who like dresses like a prostitute to That's trick her father-in-law. So funny. That's so interesting because whenever somebody says Tamar, like, I always think of this story. And I think of the other story. I know. And so I'm constantly getting them mixed up, but that makes yeah. honestly, I'm only now going, oh, that's right. Cause they do have the same name. And then Absalom names his daughter yes. Tamar, I think too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm so bad with names too, that I just doubt myself. So I didn't really make, I would never have made that connection. Amnon is obsessed with Tamar. She's Mm -hmm. so beautiful and he can't think of anything else. And he's made himself completely and utterly sick over Mm -hmm. his lust for her. So her, his, his good buddy comes is streetwise and comes up with a plan Mm -hmm. for him to have her. And he goes through with it and he rapes her and then he despises her Mm -hmm. as soon as it's done. Immediately. Even more. Yeah, he despises her even more than he was obsessed with her. her. Yeah. He's completely and totally disgusted by her and he's ruined her life. And Absalom, I'm like, oh, like what a good brother. Right. I love Absalom in the story, but he doesn't (laughs) continue that way. No, he ends up being a real, I mean, the whole, it's all twisted, right? The whole thing Mm -hmm. is like, you can see, I can see how Absalom becomes, first of all, David. Okay. I have in my margins, I have it written. Parenting is hard. Because like, amen. Everybody's screwed. Like, Eli screws up his boys. Sam oh, I thought you were talking about my Eli. <laughs> I thought you were 
give like a real life example about Eli. <laughs> that would be really nice of me. Three and a half hours worth of math <laughs> in one day. Yeah. No, Eli in the Bible. Yes, he does. For- <laughs> yes, let's talk about your son and what a screw job you're doing. Oh my word. That's hilarious. No, Eli in the Bible screws up his Eli son. Eli in the Bible, yes. You find out that Samuel, an incredible man of God, screws up his sons. And mm-hmm. I just completely read over David, a man after God's own heart, and how he screwed up his sons. Mm-hmm. It says, and David heard the whole story and was enraged, but he right. didn't he does nothing. discipline Amnon. Yeah. He says nothing. David doted on him because he was his firstborn. Absalom Mm -hmm. quit speaking to Amnon, not a word, whether good or bad, because he hated him for violating his sister Tamar. Really, David? Yeah. Really? That's all you got? That's the best you have? How can a man after God's own heart make such a huge mistake? Not make such a huge mistake. It's have such complete and total disregard for his own daughter. Mm. Right. Cause that's the thing. All parties involved were part of his family. Like they were yes. people that he loved. Yeah. Absalom comes to Tamar's. He has such care for Tamar that it turns into bitterness and sin, but it doesn't even discipline like that to me. is like, I have a really hard time with that. <laughs> I have a really hard time with that. So when I read this, it feels like David is trying to brush it all under the rug and there's a lot of shame an embarrassment and it turns out that people hear about it anyway like it's not a secret event but that's what it feels like to me it feels like david's like let's just keep this quiet so nobody knows and it wasn't the right thing to do which He's- might have been the case at first but even still when absalom kills amnon and then david so mad at absalom that he won't even let him come into his presence because absalom kills amnon and that david doesn't like see this whole thing and go but it ta- first it takes Joab to be like, I know you love your son Absalom. And so he finds a way to get Absalom to come back, which in the, in the long run, I don't think is going to play out well. We're going right. to find that in the coming weeks. But David lets him come back and he doesn't speak to him for two years. Yeah. For two years, he totally rejects his son, won't let him see him face to face is what it says. There's so much about that. that, that like, mm-hmm. and, Because in Ezekiel talks about being, he's going to see us face to face. Like I see this whole parallel between like the way that humans treat humans um, and we shame them and we make them feel bad for a long time. David's totally being passive aggressive here. Yeah. But like God doesn't treat us the way that David treated Absalom. David's passive aggression. I can relate to that. I like to think that I'm not generally passive aggressive, but I certainly can be. I I get that. Going back to Tamar, that was really, that's really heartbreaking for me that Mm -hmm. David didn't even discipline his son who raped his daughter. I can't. Some of the manuscripts add that David did not grieve the spirit of Ammon, his son, for he loved him because he was his firstborn. I feel even more judgmental towards David in relation to his parenting because Amnon is a total spoiled, rotten human being Yes, that he even entertains this thought and then goes after it. And it kind of seems like, (laughs) it seems like this is like David enabling that. And then it also kind of explains why if Amnon is clearly his favorite, it kind of explains why he doesn't defend Tamar and he does, and he's angry at Absalom for Absalom defending. Like It's so funny the contrast between like David won't tolerate anybody doing anything unholy regarding Saul. We are such messed up people, the way Mm -hmm. that we're so holy in some aspects of our lives and just be total train wrecks. 
in yeah. other parts of our lives. And that's what I feel like, like th this is what we're seeing. He's just a complete and utter train wreck in his parenting and his family life. <laughs> I said last week in a leadership class I'm taking, I was like, you know, I, what I love about David is that he's human. So it makes it attainable. And this is before I've read all of this. So before I'm just like reading all the parts. Now he's of, really human. Yes, <laughs> exactly. You know, like in all of those like spiritual parts or all of these like holy parts mm -hmm. of his life, I look up to him so much. And then I look at this and I'm like, oh, you're a total. Well, trick. like up and until like, that now. That should be so comforting, right? Yes. Like, okay. So was it last week that we talked about the ark? That was that moment where I was like. He's a real person because yeah. he was angry at the Lord for his yes. God's response to the guy that touched. Because I forgot about all of this, like in reading yeah. the beginning part yes. of David's story, so like holy. I was just so, yeah. Yeah. And I completely forgot that he is human and completely unworthy of that relationship that God gives him just like yes. everyone else, you know? Like, and so there should still be that insane hope. Like that hope yeah. should still remain. This is all of the parts of me that I know that I know are there. And so it should give me great hope that I can still be a friend of God. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. That we can still be a friend of God. Yep. Mm. In spite of the train wreck. Yes. We've kind of covered it. That's where we're left off. Mm -hmm. We're left off kind of figuring out how Absalom and David are going to move forward. Joab gets it so that Absalom can come into the king's presence. And Absalom was summoned by the king. He came and bowed down deeply in reverence before him. And the king kissed Absalom. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I don't think it, I don't think it. Yeah, I don't think it gets better. I don't think it gets better, but that's where we're left, which is a cliffhanger. <laughs> On to Ezekiel. <laughs> I feel like there were a couple things that stuck out to me in Ezekiel, but most of it, I think I was kind of like, I really felt like I need to go back and read this again. It was, I don't think you do. <laughs> Let me summarize it for you. <laughs> well, like, so one of the things I have underlined in chapter 18, like at the beginning, it's all just like, I mean, there's that whole chapter on the adulterous, yeah. like comparing Israel to an adulterous way. And then all this res responsibility of sin. And then, he uses the example of there's a man who like is righteous and then he has a son who's not righteous. Is mm -hmm. that son's unrighteousness going to count towards the father? No. And then the unrighteous man has a son who's righteous. Does the father's unrighteousness like, so he's talking through yes. all of that. Which is, is what it did in the past. Like you, the sins were counted. Right. The sins were counted. Yes. Yeah. And he's basically saying in the new covenant, the way that it's, it's going to work now, everybody's going to be accountable for their own. Sins. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it says in verse 22, none of the transgressions he's committed will be held against him. And that felt like such a look forward to me yeah, yep. that there is always mercy and abundance. And because of Christ, none of our transgressions need to be counted against us. We yeah. have that. All we have to do is believe. It just takes faith. Right. Yeah. And none of it. At the end of chapter 17, I feel like there's so many things about Ezekiel that are, it's all pointing forward to Christ. You can, I'm going to read it for you and you just listen and tell me what you, what it makes you think of. God, the master says, I personally will take a shoot from the top of the towering cedar, a cutting from the crown of the tree and plant it on a high and towering mountain on the high mountain of Israel. It will grow, putting out branches and fruit, a majestic cedar, birds, every, every sort and kind will live under it. They'll build nests in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will recognize that I, God, made the great tree small and the small tree great, made the green tree turn dry and the dry tree sprout green branches. I, God, said it and I did it. 
It's the parable of the mustard seed and the it kingdom is. of God. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yep. So I love that. Yep. And then there's a page that I have highlighted one entire page. It's in Ezekiel 20. I started highlighting around verse 32, I think. And then I just kept going all the way to the end of the chapter because, well, this, you're going to love this. It starts out with Job's question, like God's question to Job, which is, am I going to put up with questions from people like you, Israel? As sure as I am the living God, I, God, the master refused to be called into question by you. Makes okay. Whoa, up. whoa, whoa. Wait. I think this is a part where I glazed over where you're in verse 32. Uh, I think it's actually right before 32. So I, yep. Okay. I see it. So this actually, so I this chapter is actually a series. It starts out with, uh, in the very, in the very second verse, it says, uh, son of man, talk with the leaders of Israel, tell them, God, the master says, have you come to ask me questions? As sure as I'm the living God, I'll not put up with questions from you to create God, the master. So this whole thing is basically him explaining why, like, I'm not taking questions from you. This, I am God and you are not. Right. But part of the reason too, is I think this is another area where it depends on our hearts. And I guess I'm just trying to clarify, like, it's not always bad for us to inquire of God or to question God like that. That's a healthy thing for us as believers to do as long as we come back and end to like, well, you're God and I'm not. But so good. Well, yeah, because the context all between those two parts, between those two parts, there's like 30 verses and all of those verses are basically pointing to the yeah. atrocities that they've yes. done against him. Yeah. So he's basically, I mean, that, that's what it is totally about the heart. It's a heart issue. And he was like, wait, 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 you are going right. to come question me because that's what it says. So I should have started with the very first verse. It says in the seventh year, the fifth month on the 10th day of the month, some of the leaders of Israel came to ask for guidance from God. Mm-hmm. They sat down before me. And that was God's response was, wait, really? Yeah. No. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not answering your questions. So good. So anyway, this next passage, he says, um, I will judge you and you will face me face to face. This is where it says, I faced your parents with judgment in the desert and I'll face you with judgment. I'll scrutinize and search every person as you arrive and I'll bring you under the bond of the covenant. I'm in verse 36 through 38. I'll call out the rebels and traitors. I'll lead them out of their exile that I won't bring them back to Israel. Then you'll realize that I am God, but you people of Israel, this is the message of God, the master to you. Go ahead serve your no God idols, but later you'll think better of it and quit throwing filth and mud on me with your pagan offerings and no God idols for on my holy mountain, the whole, the high mountain of Israel, I God, I'll receive them there with open arms. Oh my gosh. I'll demand your best gifts and offerings, all your holy sacrifices. What's more, I'll recite, I'll receive you as the best kind of offerings. When I bring you back from all the lands and countries in which you've been scattered, I'll demonstrate in the eyes of the world that I am holy. When I return you to the land of Israel, the land that I solemnly promised with upraised arms to give to your parents, you'll realize that I am God. Then and there, you'll remember all that you've done, the way you've lived that has made you so filthy. And you'll loathe yourselves. But dear Israel, you'll also realize that I am God when I respond to you out of who I am, not by what I feel about the evil lives you've lived, the corrupt history you've compiled, decree of God, the master. That's good stuff. Yes. yes. Can you read the last verse again? How does he, because mine, I just want to know how he translates it. Mine says, when I have dealt with you for the sake of my name, rather than according to your evil. Mm, yours is what 
Dear Israel, you'll also realize that I am God when I respond to you out of who I am, mm. not by what I feel yeah, I like about that. the evil lives you've lived. Who I, I am, who not I am. by what I feel. I like what that. What I feel about the evil. Yes. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, Shall we to Second Corinthians? Let's. Okay. So I just love <laughs> that we just finished First Corinthians and that we blew through it super fast. And now we're into Second Corinthians. I mean, it's wonderful, but it's just like a big apology for the first one. <laughs> really? Well, I mean, I don't know, but like, I just see it over and over and over and over and over again. He keeps saying things like, um, I'm dying to know because I didn't get that at all. And it's also like, I've never, ever heard that before either. Like that's brand new. <laughs> yeah. So here's a, this isn't a good example, but one of the examples where it shows up just at these random times, several times in chapter seven, verse eight. It says, I know I distressed you greatly with my letter. Although I felt awful at the time, I don't feel at all bad now that I see how it turned out. And then he's talking about like how Titus, at one point he talks about how Titus, yeah, he said, and then when we saw how Titus felt, his exuberance over your response, our joy, like he's talking so much about the letter that he sent, how he was on pins and needles about how they were going to receive it. And then he gets the news from Titus that they were at the very end of chapter seven, it says he kept going over and over again, the story of your, your prompt obedience, the dignity and sensitivity of your hospitality. He was quite overwhelmed by it all. And I couldn't be more pleased. I'm so confident and proud about you. It almost sounds like he's saying like, like, I know I was harsh, but it was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like that was like, that letter was so hard for me to send. And I'm really like, I'm sorry that I had to greet you in that way. And I didn't, I wanted to come but it was way better for me to send the letter than to come because I didn't want to come and be like totally distracted by mm-hmm. how far you had fallen. Mm-hmm. So I'm so glad that I sent the letter, but it must've been so hard to hear. And then he's talking about the one person. I think that he must've told them to cast out the one person from the, among them. And then he's like kind of giving them instructions about like, now it's time to love them and restore them. Chapter two, actually verse four is another one. He goes, there was pain enough just in writing that letter, more tears than ink on the parchment, but I didn't write it to cause pain. I wrote it so you would know how much I care more than care. I love you. And then he goes on to talk about the purse, the guy, he said, now regarding the one who started all this, the person in question who caused all this pain, I want you to know that I'm not the one injured in this as much as with a few exceptions, all of you. So I don't want to come down too hard. What the majority of you agreed to is punishment is punishment enough. Now is the time to forgive this man and help him back on his feet. If all you do is pour on the guilt, you could very well drown him in it. My counsel now is to pour on the love. The focus of my letter wasn't on punishing the offender, but on getting you to take responsibility for the health of the church. And I know that I've never read anything like this in the other version. Yeah, that's so it totally different. That. <laughs> I mean, I think it's like the general idea, but it it. It feels like it changes the point of it a little bit. I would love to. Yeah. Why don't you read it in your, so I kind of was reading through, I read, I think four through Uh, four through like, yeah. So 10 and 11 are what stood out to me in that section. Four, he says, for I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love that I have for you. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain, not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. So that's the same idea as of what you were talking about. Yeah, but I don't know that I would have known that that was talking about this one person that, that they were person dealing that the with. Le- yeah, it sounds different. Yeah. 
as a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. It for me, it sounded just like kind of as an exa- like a hypothetical kind yeah. of yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe they, he is referring specifically to that one situation. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. I wrote for this purpose to test your character to see if you are obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I do too. For what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Yeah. That just made me think about how much unforgiveness is a hindrance to ourselves. Oh my God. Basically saying forgive so that Satan can't take advantage of you because we're not dumb. Like we know how he works. I mean, that goes back to second Samuel. Yeah. That's all unforgiveness yes. between Absalom and Amnon and David yep. and Absalom. And yes, unforgiveness is will destroy. Paul is just every opportunity that he has to bring the gospel into it. He just bring he just slips it right in there. And it's so mm-hmm. simple. It can be done in two verses. In fact, the end of verse five, he says, become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. How mm. you ask in Christ, God put the wrong on him who Save never did anything wrong. So we could be put right with God. Mm-hmm. Three sentences. Like we talk, yeah. we talk about like the gospel being super complicated, but like Paul's just mm-hmm. flipping it in left and right. in these little, like one sentence here, one sentence there, like yep. the gospel, that the gospel, is the gospel. That verse at the last verse in chapter five. I mean, I don't know if I could say it's my favorite Bible verse. I don't think I have a favorite Bible verse, but it's like top, like top because <laughs> of that very reason. It's gospel in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God so much depth in that. And yet yeah. it's so black and white. Like it's so simple. So simple. I and yet this that. entire book is the yes. explanation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So at the end of three, mm. it's all in one page in my Bible, but there were a couple of places that I felt was talking about the spirit. He's talking about the spirit in a couple of places. And it was mm. fun for me to think through how all of these things that he's talking about tie together. Mm-hmm. So at the end of chapter three, He's talking about the veil, having a veil. Um, But 16 says, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. Yes. Then four verse chapter four, verse Six says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And chapter five, verse five, now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a down payment. The verse in chapter four is more like about Jesus than the spirit, but just how much the spirit, because we have the spirit now, we have the capability to understand so much more than we could, I mean, anything. And then just the idea, I was thinking about the spirit as a down payment. It's our guarantee. Like, and just thinking about how much in relation to how much more they knew that there was more to come hoping for the promise and waiting for the promise. But now we have the spirit and the spirits like burst open kind of, you know what I mean? Like that our ability to, God, what am I even trying to say? Like, it's like we, it's almost like our hope is, our hope is more sure in a lot of ways. 
I, I think in my version it says 16 through 18, whenever though they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil and there they are face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it, all of us, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. That's at the heart of my desire to know more of his love. Like it all, like the motivation is that like, if I know more of his love, if I'm experiencing him on a regular basis, then when other people see me, like they're seeing Christ, they have the opportunity to see Christ. And so it's kind of funny, like, as I see God, like doing these, doing this work and like answering this prayer, and it's not in the rush that I would like it to be like, (laughs) it's not not at the pace that I would like it to be. But there are moments where I see somebody's return and interaction with a smile that I know is like deeper than just surface. It's, it's almost like I can, I know that I know Jesus was there. You know what I mean? And that, that they, that they saw a little bit of the glory of God. And I, that sounds like really weird, but it's like, I'm seeing dimly what he's going to continue to do to a greater degree as he continues to answer this prayer of increasing the size of the well and filling it up with his love. When I read that, I was like, well, there it is. That's the goal. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the it goal. makes me think of that podcast that I listened to years ago and the end of the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan is like, come further up, come further in. Mm. And this person was, I think it was actually another book that she was comparing. Like if you're looking in a mirror and there's a window behind you, you see the reflection of it, but, but you don't, you can see that it's beautiful, but you can't see all the layers and the depth of it. And just that, yes. that's another when thing he comes, the window, opens, like there's, and we go in. yes. And we go in and it's, it's further up and further in forever. Yes. Oh, what good news. I don't have anything else. I don't think I want to add anything to that. No. If you enjoyed this discussion and maybe you're wondering how to get more highlights out of your own scripture reading, you might be interested in joining our in-depth dive studies where we model our process of inductive Bible study. You can find out more at divecollective.org under the studies tab. And we will see you next week.